Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Knocked Conscious. Today is Thursday, April 14th, 2022, and I want to share a, a conversation I had with a gentleman named Howard Bloom. He's an overall genius, a world-famous publicist, scientist, um, philosopher, you name it. That's what he's, he's a jack of everything. He knows it all. Um, had a great hour and a half long conversation with him, uh, over zoom this past weekend. And I wanted to share that with everybody. I do have another scheduled conversation with him because, uh, the conversation was cut short. I left all of it in the uh, podcast because it's really cute. Cause, uh, <laughs> Howard just cracks me up. So here's the conversation. I hope you enjoy. Yes, and there we go. Reporting in progress. Eureka, sir. It. How are you? Okay, so there I am at the age of twelve, and um, Martin Gardner, uh, the uh, an amazing mathematician, had a regular column in the Scientific American called Mathematical Games, and I interpreted one of his columns as calling for a computer that would play a certain game. So I sat down with a friend of mine who was three years older than I was. And we got together over and over again, and I mapped out what this computer would be. Then he built it, and he won the Science Fair Awards. <laughs> so I've never built a computer with okay. my soldering gun. In fact, <laughs> in those days, that would have been, I was 12, so it was 1955. Um, the, the store that had electronic components in the city of Buffalo, New York, my hometown, had no computer computer components because computers in those days were the size of buildings i remember the punch cards and everything yes exactly so nonetheless he built the computer and he won the science fair awards then many years later after dropping out of college and accidentally helped start the hippie movement and hitchhiking and riding the rails and having all kinds of adventures including with murderers um i went back to school at NYU and I took a computer programming course because I loved computers or at least the idea of computers. And I got an A plus in this course. Whoever <laughs> heard of A pluses, they don't bother with pluses normally. Right. They just give you an A. Yeah. And I got A pluses on every single program that I wrote. But wow. when, when the grad students um translated my programs into punch cards and fed them into the computer, not a single one of my A-plus programs ever made it through the computer. <laughs> it always had a run error some kind of? Well, in those days... freeze, you, right? Would it just in stop? those days, the, the computers put out a thousand sheets um, of paper, all, you know, accordion folded together. Absolutely. Yeah. The dot matrix type or, or the, right. with the, with the exactly. size, right. We're fed the through the matrix. wheels. Right. And so, and the computer was designed to spot simple common errors in something called diagnostics. They all right. appeared on the front page in something called diagnostics. My errors never appeared on the diagnostic page which meant that the poor grad students had to go through a thousand pages of what was called machine language. Yes. <laughs> the raw language that the computer spoke to itself. Right. Um, and humans couldn't cotton on to, to find the error. And always somewhere around page 97, um, there was a spot where there was a division by zero. 
which, uh, which you totally, cannot define by zero. Yes, right. Which totally flummoxes a poor computer. Absolutely. So, so the you were saying um, before we got on in the midst of, I mean, we got on uh, by clawing our way <laughs> through all kinds of technical problems. Absolutely. And well, you were saying that the way you think is not the way computers think. Not, not at all. So if I, if I may, may I introduce you just very briefly, yes, Howard? Yes, we'll we'll yes. certainly go forward from there because I, I'm not going to lie. I am gushing right now. I am just grinning <laughs> ear to ear. I, I could speak with you, like I said, myriad of topics or my, I'm sorry, myriad topics. Um, it's crazy. So welcome Howard Bloom. The most recent book is Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, a search for soul in the power pits of rock and roll. Is that correct, Howard? That's absolutely correct. And, and if and I that... move my chair, you should actually be able to see the cover of the book. I think there we do is. have that back there. So I am yes. recording it, so we will see that. So thank you. And that was that was published in 2020, correct? Oh, my God. I lose track of these things. Uh, <laughs> I think it was. <laughs> but, it was somewhere around 2020, yes. But to your point about this is, I, I listened to your book. Uh, for, first of all, how this how this came to be was just kismet for me. So I'm I'm absolutely blessed that I'm even having a conversation um, because so many things are going through my mind. I can't. It's very hard to explain. But basically, it just opens up every channel that's always bouncing around in my brain. You know, that's amazing. So I listened to your book. I listened to the book, and then I watched your. I and then I happened to type you up to look at any other interviews you had. Right. And you were on Joe Rogan and then yes. I melted. So then I listened to that. <laughs> I listened to that podcast and it's funny because every question that Joe had came up. It, it, I'm not Joe Rogan by any stretch of any, any imagination, but I have the curiosity and I, right. always, you know, you always talk about your adage is your first two uh, rules of science. Well, I, I adopt Aristotle's uh, point of it. It's the mark of an educated man to uh, entertain an idea without adopting it. Right. And I that's, think that's where that's we get a very lost. interesting statement. I love that one. We, we get lost in that. Right. Howard, we, right. we lose the nuance of conversation. Right. And that's where we're at in this crazy, crazy world. So someone in the Michael Jackson community reached out to me and gave me your email address. Right. And it, it's one of those ones. It's like a dial up one from back in the day. And I also have one that's old. <laughs> right. But I reached out and two minutes later, I get a response. And thank you so much for being so gracious with your time. Well, you're welcome. So we've been having a wonderful time waiting through technicalities <laughs> yeah. um, this afternoon. And so. it's funny, you spoke about it, the, uh, having a conversation, how direct people are. And at work, it's like when I walk into my job, it's like a, a switch flips and I am just all business. Right. And my home life and my work life are 180 degree opposites almost in a way. Well, here I am sitting at home and my life, I realized back around 1980 that my life was my work. And so we took the living room of this place and we converted it into an office. And then Stereo Review came out and wrote an article about the office because it was on the techno technological cutting edge. Um, and I don't know what made it technological cutting edge because it was before even DVD recorders <laughs> had come out. That might before be why it was computers. Because no one else had done it. That's what it is. Right. right? I, so. I mean, you, 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 lie, you lie, lay in your bed for on your back typing your books, correct? 
Well, you, I used to. Used to uh, right. I mean, I was stuck in bed for 15 years. Yeah. And would you, would you I like to share that right off the bat. Let's let's well, talk about your chronic. I mean, uh, or do you have a direction you like to go? Well, uh, you know, if we start at the beginning, we'll tell a coherent story. <laughs> I, I love it. So and the beginning is uh, there was I don't know what happened in the first 10 years of my life. Well, I do know what happened. My father was drafted. Um, my so he went off to uh, San Francisco. Um, my mother had to take care of the family store. And so I wasn't a baby. Um, in other words, I had no parents. Um, the, they hired, my mother hired a cleaning woman. Now, look, if, you, if you're an intelligent person, and she was, and you have a baby, then presumably you hire a babysitter, for God's sakes. <laughs> and in the title is the clear implication that she's there to take care of the baby. Absolutely. But if you hire a cleaning woman, She's there to take care of the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and the apartment was the size of a couple of postage stamps. So the and she takes care of the postage stamp sized rug. So that's what happened. The babysitters would put me in a little windowless corridor um, from the that led from the living room to the bedrooms in the back. And it had a hardwood floor. She never bothered to turn on the light. And she put up a baby barrier, um, you know, one of those folding things. And that's how I spent the first three years of my life, basically. Oh, my God. Um, was so locked away. The social no, conditioning is just out the window. Yeah, no social conditioning whatsoever, not even parents. So, um, and this is true. It was, it, the result was truly painful because for 50 years, I had clinical depression which means that I was in emotional agony every second of every day um, for 50 friggin' years. But the advantage of being a perpetual outsider who's never acclimated <laughs> to, uh, to human groups, um, always an outsider to human groups, the advantages are enormous. That's what's um, funny about this, because you would have been in my group. We had a group of the misfits, you know, or whatever, right? you, would, you know, that group of people that were, I it's I've always been fascinated by different. I don't have to agree with you to believe I don't right. have to believe in what you believe in to believe in you. Right. right. I, I, I just found people to be so fascinating. So the different people. I would gravitate towards my group of people were all over the spectrum. Right. I think you would have felt right at home in, in my click, right? you you mentioned click, right? Well, yes, I, <laughs> but I never, somewhere along the line, I discovered that I could assemble my own groups. And if I assembled a group, then I was clearly its leader. And that's the only position where I've ever felt comfortable. I mean, it's reminiscent of, um, when I got into something, well, look, I wasn't into popular culture as a kid because popular culture was the culture of the people who beat me up and humiliated me and chased me around the block. Right. Um, you went, so you I went, went the opposite enough, of that. I mean, or you just kind of look the other way, right? Well, I, I listened to Rachmaninoff, Beethoven, Bartok and Stravinsky. And then when I, my parents sent me off to summer camp in one of their many hopeless attempts to make me human to make me a kid, um, I refused to go along with the process. And there was a kid from New York at the summer camp and New Yorkers were like people from another planet. 
And he told me about this form of music that represented human freedom and human freedom sounded wonderful to me. So I got into jazz. I didn't like it as much as I like Rachmaninoff, Beethoven, Bartok, and Stravinsky. Um, but that I was into it. I, I bought tons of jazz records. Um, and, and I didn't register alike for anything in the world of popular music until I was hitchhiking and riding the rails up and down the West Coast. And one day I was picked up by a, a, a convertible, um, a Chevy convertible. Um, and on their radio, the car radio, we were driving down the Pacific Coast Highway. So we had the Pacific Ocean on our right. It was a magnificent view. And on came Neil Sedaka's Breaking Up is Hard to Do. And I liked that song. Despite I, my... I love Neil Sedaka. Yeah, well, despite my resistance one of, to one popular of my, culture. One of my early memories. I'm a, I'm a little younger. I'm 47. Right. But right. Uh, I'm an 30 old, years younger. I'm, I'm an 31 old soul. years younger. Yeah, but I, I'm an old soul, Howard. I mean, uh, so many things I want to talk about. But that I remember this 33 album that had a bunch of different songs on it. And I'm from right. Philadelphia. So the Temptations had just ah, my imagination. And right. it was Archie Bell and the Drells Tighten Up. It was Amazing. like my favorite song. It was Amazing. the song that just made you just get up and dance. And Daryl Hall and John Oates were growing Hall and up John Oates, in yeah. Philadelphia. Yeah, very and much. I grew up is when I was born. So that was well, definitely my well, wheelhouse. So they were totally imprinted on the Temptations. 100%. They wanted to be, the, to be the Temptations more than anything else in life. If the Temptations were playing Philadelphia, they used to show up uh, at the backstage entrance, just hoping to get a second or 10 seconds with any member of the Temptations they yeah. possibly could. So that led to me. I mean, we're skipping over lots of well, stuff. We're, I, 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 I work A to Z to K to F to G, whichever direction we go. <laughs> well, so having discovered this, I mean, that's <laughs> my job was to discover the souls of my clients when I right. finally got into popular culture and founded the biggest PR firm in the music industry. Soul was what it was all about. And since the soul of Paul and Oates, my clients, was just laser focused on the temptations i sat down with their manager tommy matola who in those days was a famous powerhouse mm -hmm. and said tommy look um the Re apollo theater is reopening for the second time i handled the press on the first opening of the apollo um daryl and john are totally obsessed with the temptations if you get Daryl and John, or if you get the Temptations to say yes to performing with Daryl and John, I will get the Apollo Theater to say yes to giving us one of their opening slots. Um, because an opening slot of the Apollo validates Daryl and John in what they've been into all their lives. Absolutely. Is, the Apollo is the standard for a segment of music that you are in or you're not in. I mean, right. you're part of it or you're not part of it. And right. You're accepted so, or rejected. I've, I've seen the boo birds and I've seen the cheers at the Apollo. It's amazing. Amazing. So um, the Apollo was in the hands of a guy named Percy Sutton, who had been the borough president of Manhattan um, and who had been high in uh, the Dinkins mayoral administration and who owns six of the biggest, most trendsetting uh, R&B stations um, in the country. 
And uh, he was famous for not taking phone calls from white people. But I had been introduced to him through Bob Marley. And I was sure I could get him on the phone. And so that's, uh, that's Tom, a good name drop, isn't it? I mean, you know, the Bob Marley. Right. Then <laughs> that's a whole story in itself. Absolutely. So, so at any rate, uh, Tommy went and got the temptations. I called Percy and Percy said, well, my opening night is already taken. But how about doing the second night? Well, that was sufficiently historic, though nowhere near reopening the Apollo Theater with this right. show. That's, but it was sufficient. Yeah. That would have been something else. But this was sufficiently historic that it made the point. And then I said to Tommy, there are these new things and they're selling right crazy and they're music video DVDs, um, 90 minute DVDs of an entire concert. So try to get a deal to put out a DVD version of this. And Tommy went out and he got that deal and it sold like crazy when it came out. But how I got from being an outcast in, uh, in a narrow windowless corridor with my hands on a cold hardwood floor, because I was crawling in those days, to rock and roll, is that's a long story. So I, I, I do jump around because I follow the topic. You mentioned uh, emotional depression. Right. For 50 years, but you're 78, correct? Right. Can you tell me about that, that journey? Uh, well, it's monstrous. Uh, it, it, it's really, truly monstrous to be in pain all like that all of the time. And I guess uh, we're, I mean, I'm, we're skipping over a lot of stuff here, but I'm 14 years old. Um, my, I've been reading two books a day since I was 10 years old. I've read one book under the desk and another book when I get home. Teachers do not like me because I never pay any attention to a word they say. I'm too busy reading. And by the way, I think that Daryl um, Hall used to do the same sort of thing. But at any rate... Um, it's time for the transition from grammar school to high school. So I show up at the new high school I'm supposed to be going to, and the place is like a prison for me. It's huge. It's semi-Gothic. Um, it has these high windows like church windows. They sit me, seat me next to a, a black kid five inches taller than I am, who I adore. He turns out to me, he feels just like a wonderful person. Um, but I am truly oppressed by the atmosphere in this place. And then my parents reveal something to me. Now, I have to go back a step. My parents had at some point looked for private schools for me, and they'd sent me to an interview with interviews with the headmasters of the two major private schools in Buffalo, New York. And in one, I just didn't fit. Everybody wore suits and ties. I hate suits and ties. Um, <laughs> And in the other one, for God knows what reason, I said to the headmaster, look, I will only come to your school on the following conditions. First of all, you have to teach me Russian because Russia is going to be a major country in the future. Now, remember, I'm 12 years old. It's 1955. Wow. It's two years before Sputnik goes right. up. And that, really, is, 
That is unbelievable. Yeah. The for the foresight. Oh, wait, it, it, I, I yeah. give him another condition. And I say, look, you traditionally teach science um, by teaching biology first, chemistry second, and physics third. I want you to reverse the order of your science courses. So you teach me physics, which means the Big Bang. Now, at that point, Big Bang theory was very controversial. And the guy who was in charge, basically, of steady state theory, its opponent, knew he would drive it out of, out of theoretical physics within two years, and no one would ever hear of it again. But I was totally convinced on Big Bang theory. So I said, first, you teach me about the Big Bang and the origin of elementary particles. That's physics. Then you teach me chemistry, because that's what elementary particles and atoms do when they get together, when they socialize. Then you teach my biology because that's what molecules um, do when they socialize. And right. then you teach me anthropology so you can teach me about the origin of human societies. And you talk about and cultures you, and things like that. Yeah. And then you teach me history. That um, makes absolute sense because you're going from small to large. You're going from the quark through to the mat, to the large. To and, the globe. You're, and you're doing something miraculous that happens when you put things in chronological order. It's called a story. You're building, yeah, your foundation of. Yeah, you tell a story. I'm yeah. 12 years old. I, and I'm dictating this to him. So my parents, <laughs> so back to the question of depression. So my parents, after my first week and a half at this monstrous school, that feels like a penitentiary to me, come to me and they say, look, we got you into the school with the headmaster that you gave a hard time to. Um, if we will send you to this private school, which has 60 acres of land, it's green, it's gorgeous. Um, and oh, but only on one condition, you have to promise to work. Okay, so I've just promised to discard my two books a day and to work on homework. And I discover something that my work is the one thing that diminishes the pain of depression. It doesn't take it down to zero. It takes it down by maybe 25%. Is it a distraction thing or just a diff, an alternate focus, kind of like biting on a bit when you're getting surgery? Well, something? here's a little bit of theory. We have an internal self and an external self. Yep. The internal self is the, the, guided by the parasympathetic nervous system which handles things, automatic functions like heart beating and breathing. Um, and, and the internal self is there so we can check ourselves over, um, so we can see if we have any serious problems that we need to take care of. However, the internal self is depressive. And then there's the exterior self. And the exterior self comes alive basically when we're interfacing with other people or when we were interfacing with some sort of a problem, like your engine won't work, how do you fix it? Um, and the exterior self is the opposite of depressive. Um, it is it moves in the direction of el elation, if you want to call it that. Okay. Um, and you can see the interior self at work in the morning when you wake up. Because when you wake up in the morning, whether you recognize it or not, your, your mind goes through a quick body check, like your computer checking out your car systems. Yeah. Um, and it looks for aches and pains and 
all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, but if you start talking to somebody else, that melts away and you go into your exterior self. Well, I never got much of an opportunity to engage the exterior self when I was a kid because I had no social contacts. Um, and so I was dominated by the depressive interior self, the parasympathetic nervous system. The, the exterior self is handled by what's called the sympathetic nervous system, right. which is there for engaging with the outside world. Um, and if I engaged in work, it could take an hour, but within the first 15 minutes to an hour, I'd be soaring. I'd be flying. I'd be free um, of that interior self. Now, in the days of uh, chronic pain, a chronic emotional pain, the emotional pain never stopped, but it diminished. And so I became a workaholic. So my life has been my work ever since. And of course, you could say that I was already a workaholic at the age of 10 when I discovered books. Because who else but a workaholic can read two books a day? Right. Absolutely. So you're just the, wired like a person. I mean, there. How 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 many percentage of people? Less than five percent, maybe one to two percent wired in that level. That um, you are? I have no idea. All I know is that I became intellectually voracious. Um, I encountered the first two rules of science that you alluded to earlier in the conversation. I was sitting there in my family's living room one day, this big dark living room, um, and um, and and I knew the location of every every single book in the house because they'd all been the same ever since we'd moved into this house. Um, and all of a sudden, a book appeared that had no place on our shelves. And it's on my lap and I open it up and it says the first two rules of science are these. The truth at any price, including the price of your life. And look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. And that galvanized me. I don't know what you would call it. I imprinted on it. Yeah. Um, that became my religion. Truth. It's and, something, something about truth. Right. And... Um, I learned very early in this two-book-a-day reading habit of science books and science fiction books that science is about the aspiration to omniscience. It's about the desire to know and be able to explain everything. Right. That's and to know that you do not know right. is, exactly. the truth, is the true knowledge, right? Right. So, um, so I became um, omnivorously curious curious about everything. And I started looking for things right under my nose that everybody takes for granted and doesn't even see or there. Yeah. And the thing that I discovered right under my nose over the course of the tw two years of my basic education, the two years when I was reading two books a day from the age of 10 to the age of 12, what I discovered was under my nose is that when I went to my synagogue, which I hated to do, right. I absolutely <laughs> loathed doing. Um, yeah. It was set up like a Lutheran church. It had these hardwood pews. I'm Lutheran. Um, I know. I know what right. Lutheran is. <laughs> so those pews lined you up and imprisoned you. Yeah. Because imagine the only space left in the pew is the middle seat. How do you get there? Everybody sitting there has to move their knees somehow, yeah. which is impossible, so that you can get through. So once you're through, once you found your seat, you're stuck. Then you have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, you are locked in. Right. Um, 
and you do whatever the minister or the rabbi tells you to do. If he tells you to stand, you stand. If he tells yeah. you to sit, you sit. If he tells you to sing, you sing. But there's something profoundly missing. I don't know why I realized this, but I realized this by the time I was 12, that there was something profoundly missing in this version of religion. Oh, for sure. And I think it's that humans changed, you know, took it to their advantage or changed it to their well, it's that that there's no there's no transcendent experience there. Yeah, there's no ecstatic experience there. And it be, it be, they become a business and a position of power, I, right? I mean, there are a lot of things that corrupt, right? We talk, you know, we see those things happen, right? Uh, but the most important thing, I mean, okay, so synagogues, are, if I may, I, if may I give you a little background story? Yes, um, go ahead. My mother worked for a Jewish caterer uh-huh. uh, in the United in in. Uh, in philadelphia martha ward catering right he became wendy ward catering we were one of the top ones we've done we run the trump's princess for example we've done amazing i think the drummer bon jovi's wedding on the beach uh we've done <laughs> you know we've done all these different we've done the republican national convention in philadelphia right. in 96 or 2000 i forget which one, which year it was i think it was 2000 and all these other things so um i just grew up with a very rich jewish community yet we were german right and we had a community that was just unmasked like we just it was the we're the same people and then we look back to the years my grandfather fought in world war ii on the german side amazing and they escaped east germany and came here with my mom and my aunt and my grandmother and the stories that the 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 blessed that i have the luck that i am to be here you know and just to see the multicultural type things and and that but i love the jewish community and synagogues they are rich with this beautiful culture but i can imagine the structure being uh suffocating well i thought it was uh, i thought it was profoundly repressive okay was was there ever a rabbi that did inspire oh no not at all uh when when i was in confirmation class after my bar mitzvah they threw me out the rabbi threw me out because i was raising atheist arguments and and i i was monopolizing class time (laughs) and he couldn't teach anybody they don't like Uh, those (laughs) <laughs> yeah, while I, while I was in the room. So, um, no, there were no rabbis who ever inspired me. Uh, the, uh, it's a crazy story. I mean, my mother at one point, um, she did a couple of good things. My mother couldn't handle intimacy, at least not with me. Um, and it might have been that I couldn't handle intimacy. I mean, when your parents abandon you, when you're a baby, you develop defense mechanisms. So you've yeah. got a fortress around your emotion. Jordan Peterson uh, talks a lot about if you're not socially adjusted by four and if the right. first three years of your life were not even, you know, there was no tactile response or was nothing right. that can easily imprint in a very negative. I mean, in your case, it certainly drove you in a very good positive direction, but it could easily turn the other way. I mean, very it could, easily. It could easily, but, but my mother could do things at a distance from me and she saw what was happening with me somehow when I was 12. And she uh, arranged to, for me to have a meeting with the head of the graduate physics department at the University of Buffalo. Now, I, because of those two rules of science, I became immersed in microbiology and theoretical physics at the age of 10. Right. And I was reading my head off on these topics. And my mother, seeing what was happening with me, took me to a used medical equipment store that sold medical equipment to the um, to the medical students at um, the University of Buffalo, 
And she bought me a professional 1935 uh, Zeiss microscope. Um, she let me pick it out. A Carl Zeiss um, lens microscope from 1935. Oh, yes. oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah, right. With I can imagine barrel. the precision and the handcraft, uh, just the craftsmanship of it. And working, it was difficult as hell. Um, but I mastered that and I started looking at pond water, just like Anton von Leeuwenhoek, the inventor of the microscope, had. And it was Anton von Leeuwenhoek's life that was used as the example of looking at things right under your nose, as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. And then she arranged for a meeting with the head of the graduate physics department of the University of Buffalo. Now, Thinking back on it, the only thing I can imagine is that she managed to use her academic connections to get a courtesy visit. So I would imagine that this, that this guy was planning to spend five minutes with me to appease my mother. Um, but we went into his office. He closed the door. We didn't come out for an hour. My mother must have read every single magazine he had in his <laughs> waiting room. Um, and why? Because it was 1955. It was the year that the guy who was the major champion of steady state physics, steady state cosmology of the universe, it was the year he absolutely knew that he was about to destroy Big Bang Theory, which he had named facetiously. He came up with the term. That's big correct. Bang. It was it was a spoof in a way. Like, what is yeah. some Big Bang Theory or something? Right, he even exactly. said it the way under his breath, I think, if I remember right. correctly. And uh, so we sat there discussing Big Bang versus steady state theory of the universe and the interpretation of the Doppler shift, which was the hottest topic in science at the time. And, when and if we, we may, the Doppler shift had to do with the red and blue shift. Is that yes, correct? exactly. So exactly. Like it had we, to do with the interpretation of whether things were moving away from us or in other closer, words, whether right? stars and gal other galaxies were moving away from us or moving toward us. Correct. And the Doppler shift indicated that they were moving away from us. That's right. And I believe it was red, correct? Was, was yes, it moving exactly. away from us? So if most people who probably are, are familiar with the Doppler effect, you hear a train going by, you know, it's very right. familiar with sound. In this case, it's light waves. But it, right. it would be a wave of some sort. I'm, right, I exactly. apologize for... I probably just mansplained that to somebody, but I just want <laughs> I, you know, I never know who's listening. So just in case, right. uh, but uh, thank you, please continue. So basically the Doppler shift, we were finding that the further away it was, the faster actually was expanding. Correct. And, right. Uh, who was it that wasn't it Hubble that showed it was Einstein Hubble who, through the yes. lens, right? Through the yeah. telescope. Right. It was Hubble who came up with the expanding universe. Yeah. And actually so, I had, I had Jeff Hester on who was actually the person who was one of the chief engineers for the Hubble. Right. And he was there when the first picture was taken. He was at the computer when the first Hubble picture. Was taken. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, amazing. Was, he's an amazing gentleman as well. You, you two would probably be peas in a pod. So. Right. Well, <laughs> so so um, we came out of his office and he put his hand on my shoulder and he's standing behind me. And he put and he said to my mom, you don't have to save for grad school for him. He'll get graduate fellowships in theoretical physics at any school he wants. Um, <laughs> so. So um, can I ask you this about your family? Was it your family specifically, your mother specifically, or is it, do you think it's a little bit cultural that your mother saw that talent in you and wanted to encourage it versus extinguish it? It's very cultural. Remember, Jewish women either want to marry doctors or they want their sons to become doctors. Right. In other words, they want their kids to become credentialed. Um, and they don't the, care, not in any, it doesn't matter how, correct? Is that, is that, right. just, they just want to be the best at what they do. 
Right. And they and they want to have the status. Uh, there's a certain status that comes with being credentialed. Yeah. Um, and uh, my mother's mother in Riga, Latvia, um, thought she was engaged to this guy who was on his way to becoming a doctor. And uh, and he broke her heart. He left her and married somebody else. Um, and she instead married a tailor from a town on the outskirts of Riga called Golding. And and she bitterly resented the fact that he was not a doctor. And she destroyed him oh, for the rest of their lives together. And awful. this is very Jewish. She couldn't stand the fact that he wasn't credentialed. Right. Um, and my mom had exactly the same syndrome. And my dad, um, she got him a liquor license because she was the uh, personal assistant to the head of the New York State Liquor Authority. Um, and he started a little tiny store. And that's where she went when my dad was shipped off to California for the war. She went to take care of that liquor store. That's why I had no mom. Um, and she gave her husband, my father, the same sort of viciously hard time that her mother had given her father. And but my dad and I didn't quite realize that this until recently, my dad, I knew, built the biggest liquor store in Western New York State. What I didn't realize is what an important institution he built for the city of Buffalo and its surrounding towns. Um, today, what he built has become the Costco of liquor in Western New York State. It's unlike wow. anything they have any place else that I've ever been. Interesting. Um, so I come from a state in Pennsylvania that has a, a we're actually the largest single purchaser of liquor in the country because amazing it's a, blue, it's a blue state because pennsylvania has state stores they don't have right they don't have liquor stores like you would have in new york right so we have a totally different or they did have a totally different process they started moving wine right. and beer into supermarkets but tell us tell me about your your dad's store what, what well that basically to? i mean i didn't know that much about it when i had to work there during one summer vacation it nearly drove me insane with boredom uh i mean it was boredom to the point where it actually hurt it physically hurt <laughs> The boredom was so bad. Um, I, when my father had a bright idea, which was um, taking, he felt that there were certain substances in wine that improved human health. And so he wanted to put out a line of vitamins that contained this miracle ingredient. Today, it's called resveratrol. Yeah, the antioxidant um, type pieces, right? That, that we talked yep. about that's in red wine. Okay. Right. But in those days, this was breakthrough right. stuff. I, oh, that is absolutely. I'm just established. I'm astonished that your father had somehow made that correlation. Well, and so he went to my uncle, who was a doctor, and the two of them put together a company to sell this stuff. Um, and I sat down. I was 15 years old. It was the first thing my father had done that caught my imagination. And I wrote, I created a, an advertising campaign that very explained in very simple terms what this stuff did. Um, so I couldn't relate to most of what my dad was doing. I mean, I hate alcohol. I loathe it. I despise it. It is one of the most lethal poisons on the face of the earth, literally, in terms of the number of deaths it causes. Um, and... Um, but I could engage with this new thing he was doing. And then my dad came up with an idea. He decided to introduce Buffalo, New York to something it didn't drink at the time 
called wine. And he would take my mom um, on chateau trips around Europe. He, um, he literally brought the wine culture into Buffalo. Yes. And he had me and I at that point had taught myself calligraphy. Um, and he had me research all the wines that he was bringing in, digest the research down to 120 words, um, and then calligraph the 120 words on a little stand-up card so that he could lay the wines out on tables with little stand-up cards that I wrote um, plugging the wines. Now, I hated wine. But, but you said, you gave this amazing quote from Aristotle at the beginning of our conversation in which Aristotle basically said, until you can put yourself in the minds of just about everybody on this planet, you're not cutting it. Um, you're not living up to your human potential. Yeah. Um, even the minds that you disagree with. So I could get into these descriptions of the wines, even though I hated the wines. Right. Today, um, there's this horrible, monstrous, appalling war going on in the Ukraine. And it turns out that you can't understand what's going on in Vladimir Putin's mind unless you understand the way of thinking created by a guy named Alexander Dugan. My, I have a partner in Moscow. He's my partner in theoretical physics. His name is Pavel Karakhan. He's at the Keldrish Institute of Applied Mathematics of the Russian Academy of Sciences. And to me, he's the only brother I've got on earth. Um, and uh, 10 years ago, he said, you've got to look into this thing called Eurasianism. So I started looking into this thing called Eurasianism. And it turns out that in the Eurasianist view of the world, which um, Alexander Dugan is the thought leader for, and he's the thought maker for. Would we call um, Eurasia China, Russia, and India, or what? Oh, well, it's we it, it's, it's basically it's China, it's Russia, it's Germany, France, okay. Italy, okay. Spain, the, the entire Europe and Asia together, not the Eurasia the, like that yes, transition the whole, between the two spots. Yes, okay, the whole Got damn it. thing. Okay, I understand. So the entire Alexander piece. Dugan's philosophy. There's no such thing as the Darwinian timeline that you and I look at <laughs> for the universe. In the beginning of this world, the first people that God created were the Russian people. And he deliberately created them at the very hinge point between Europe and Asia. Why? Because God created the Russian people to rule the earth. And the first step of ruling the earth is ruling the entire Eurasian continent. Now, Xi Jinping, I wonder what goes on in Xi Jinping's mind in relation to this philosophy. Because it really means that once Russia has taken all of Europe, Russia wants to take China, too. Right. But Ru China will be ahead of them and have three X the people. They're not concerned. Yes, about, exactly. they'll, have the they'll have the technology. Well, and they'll the have roughly the 10 times the number of people. Right. But you understand. I mean, that would be that that would be the long 50 year goal of the of the dynasty, correct? Of the CCP. Right. And guess. in the current view, um, I mean, current as of this month, in the current Eurasianist view, the Ukrainians, first of all, um, Dugan says, you cannot talk seriously about Eurasian politics unless you solve the Ukraine problem. 
Does this sound a little bit like the Jewish problem? It is. It does sound exactly um, like that. Yeah, it's yeah. Hitler's Jewish problem all over yeah. again. Why? Because the Ukrainian people, first of all, don't exist. The Ukraine is little Russia and new Russia. It's all Russia. Um, and um, its people are Nazis. Now, what does that mean? I mean, I had a very hard time getting a definition of what a Nazi is in Vladimir Putin's viewpoint. Right. It's Western, Western oriented. It's democratically oriented. It's anti-Putin. If you are any of those th three things, anti-Putin, anti or pro-Western, pro-democratic, you're a Nazi. Now, the majority of Ukrainians. So, so basically, he's he's redefined the the term, and we're assuming he's not redefining the term. That's right. That we're already confused at the first opening of the conversation yes because so what we're, right the the bat, we're not even talking about the same things right so the exercise we're doing right now when it comes to vladimir putin's mind Where's corporate media and all this can well well the, forget them for the moment let's finish the the, the argument <laughs> yeah, please here. please the argument is that the ukrainian people who of course don't exist have demonstrated that the majority of them are nazis by voting in a Nazi government. Well, what's a Nazi government? It's a pro-Western, pro-democratic government. Right. And um, because the majority of Ukrainians are Nazis, pro-Western, pro-democratic, um, they are too imbued with this Nazism to ever be re-educated. So the Russian people must exterminate the majority of the Ukrainian population. It is it, it is so old Germanic in thinking because it reminds me of Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson spoke of the German thing. How could you get to that point where you're the person unloading the people on the train cars at Auschwitz, right? right? And it's disgust. If you if you have enough disgust for someone, you want to exterminate disgust. You can dislike someone and disagree, but if you disgust it, you need to stomp it out. And well, it's a, it. that's a good point. So right cool. now. When we see when uh, we see a, a suburb of Kiev, in which there are bodies, people who've been shot, and the train station lining the, recent, the street, yeah, the yeah, recent train Buka, station, or right? yes, the fifty-two people dead, station. and yeah, well, that's exterminating people who are endangering everything that is positive and good in life. Yeah, because everything positive and good in life comes from the Orthodox Church, comes from the it comes from the institutions of russianism of being profoundly russian and there's another there are another few things that you need to know but this is all in the spirit of aristotle saying you have to be able to put yourself in the mind of a person you degree disagree with profoundly howard going I, to i'm i'm going to process this as is i am all about the conversation because not enough thought is out there so i would love for any kind of thing to spark anyone's mind to think differently or just to think so please share well, any the point that. here is that there is a, a, a there is a noxious viewpoint it doesn't mean we should exterminate the russian people the russian people are profoundly good and they're I, suffering they've suffered for a hundred plus years 50 how so, many millions dead 50 yeah, 60 of, million because of these uh oppressive philosophies but yeah. remember before the marxists came along they had the czars. Yes. Yeah. So they have lived in a state that we would call oppression. Oppression, for sure. Yeah. For 500 years at least.
Yeah. Um, there, but there are a couple of other things to know. First of all, um, the Ukraine, Kiev, Kiev was the the origin point of Russia, of correct? Russianism. Yes. Yes. It was, it's the homeland of Russianism. Yeah. The Vikings came down the river, discovered the river system, the interior river system of Europe at the hinge point between Europe and Asia. And they discovered that there were all of these beautiful people, beautiful when they're young, at least, um, who they could take as slaves and they could continue down the river system all the way to Constantinople, Byzantium, which was where the Russian Empire or where the Roman Empire was ruled for 1200 years. The, Ru- the Eastern Empire, right? The well, East, but or... they didn't think of it as the Eastern oh, right, Roman right. Empire. I, I'm just they trying thought to be... of it as the Roman Empire. Right, but I'm, and, just, and... I'm just trying to be clear. There was yes. a Ru- there was kind of, Rome was running the Western half con- well, technically. Okay, so let's go back to Constantine. Sure, so Constantine sure, is in the middle of a battle. Constantine is not yet emperor of Rome. And uh, maybe he is, I'm not sure, but, but it's 322 A.D., And Constantine has a vision of a cross in the sun, and he converts to Christianity, this outcast religion. (laughs) Um, And over the course of the next 15 years, he converts the entire Roman Empire to Christianity. Um, And the original heart of the Roman Empire is Rome, and the original heart of Christianity is Rome. But but, uh, Constantine has another bright idea. Um, he decides to move Rome uh, 1,200 miles to the east. And he, he picks a city called Byzantium, and that's the new Rome. Right. So that and then, then becomes, becomes Constantinople. because Yeah, and that becomes the center of the Roman Empire, period. And it also becomes the one place on earth to which God talks. God has spoken through Rome. Right. Now God speaks through the second Rome, Byzantium. And then in 1453, um, Byzantium falls to the Muslims. Right. And, and the Russians that, yeah. believe that they, that Moscow is the third Rome. So now Russia is the only place on earth that talks directly to God. <laughs> so that idea of being the third Rome with the destiny of saving all of mankind. Right. The way that they're currently saving the citizens of Buca by shooting a whole mess of them in the head, um, that becomes the manifest destiny of Russia. Interesting, Third Rome, Third Reich. I mean, it's very. I mean, it's just it's oddly, I never thought odd, of that. Oddly parallel in so many different ways. Well, there's a weird thing about projection. You take your own worst qualities, and you cannot confess to yourself that they are your qualities. So how do you handle the fact that they're alive in your mind and emotions almost constantly? You project them onto others. So often an uh, an accusation is a confession in disguise. So the man, the closest thing to an Adolf Hitler of the 21st century is named Vladimir Putin. And he is accusing others of being Nazis and saying they need to be exterminated because they are Nazis. But who's the real Nazi? It's Vladimir Putin. Right. Another person who uses this projection all over the place is um, Donald Trump. And almost everything he accuses others of, he's guilty of. Yeah. He accused uh, Ted Cruz of being lying Ted. 
Well, he lies. <laughs> he, uh, Donald Trump lies roughly 30 times a day. Um, he accuses Hillary Clinton of being criminal Hillary. Well, this is a guy who skirted the laws. Right now we're talking about shutting off all of the conduits of Russian money in the United States, the money of the oligarchs. Well, if you're truly going to do that, you have to shut down the central core from which the Russian oligarchs work in the United States. That'd be real estate, I would assume, correct? Yes, it's Trump real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Most specifically, it's Trump Tower. Because yes. Trump Tower has been the capital of the Russian mafia in the United States for I'm not quite sure how many decades at this point. But one of Donald Trump's sons told us point blank, we make most of our money from the Russians at the same time that his dad was saying, I have nothing to do with Russia. The <laughs> point being that was that, that Eric probably because he's not the he's not the sharpest of the two. I, I don't remember. Which <laughs> I find Donald that. to be the sharper. Yeah. Of the two. But the point is, <laughs> OK, first of all, Sun Tzu, the, the Chinese master of tactics, uh, the, the most respected strategist in the history of strategy and tactics, Sun Tzu that says that to defeat an enemy, you have to be able to walk in his shoes. In other words, to be able to defeat an enemy, you have to be able to find the empathic part of yourself that corresponds to the enemy so that you can breathe the way he breathes, so that you can eat the way he eats, so you can see the world through the lens through which he sees it, so you can anticipate his next moves. So, so in that's, that, oh, sorry, that's the exercise we're going through right now with Vladimir Putin. Well, in that vein... In Putin's shoes, how did he not put himself in the shoes of the Ukrainians to fight for their sovereignty? Did, did he misstep here or did he really not? Does he not care? I mean, does he just throw bodies at it? Ukrainian sovereignty, first of all, it, he, is, he sees himself as being in the tradition of the great czars. He sees himself as being in the tradition of Ivan the Terrible and did war crimes uh, in any way um, disturb him? No, he got a name as great for being the terrible. Um, Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, and Catherine the Great. And it's said that he is reading these days mostly about Catherine the Great. All of these czars expanded the Russian Empire. And they expanded it by being perfectly willing to dispose of hundreds of thousands of humans at a time. Right. Right. Perfectly willing. In fact, that's what made Russia unique when, for example, it was invaded by Napoleon. Right. And, and Germany. When it, and when it was invaded by Germany. Right. Exactly. So Russia the question was always is that, willing to have more corpses than anybody else could possibly and possibly accept. And there's a pride in that. They wear that. They wear it almost like a badge of honor, like a badge of trauma. Like it's like the perfect, the ultimate victim. Yep. And, I lost and 30 again, million people in World War Two. You only lost 10 million. You yes, know, or, exactly. Or that's uh, that's so, exactly it. So did he did he misstep in his abilities or did he just not care? I mean, is it ultimately just taking it at all? costs? He doesn't care. He's already demonstrated his way of taking territory um, in um, Chechnya. Yeah. And, and, where yep. he leveled a city yeah. and in um, Syria, yeah, in Syria, where yeah. he has leveled cities. And so his philosophy is level the fuck the city. Doesn't matter how many people you lose. It doesn't matter how many people accuse you of war crimes. 
you have persistence that others don't because you are Russian. And you have the persistence uh, and the willingness to take more losses than anybody else could tolerate. Wow. And that's how you win. Yeah. And you level entire cities if they get in your way. And since so, the Ukraine doesn't exist, it's a false construction. These cities have no right to exist. With the so there's no of, way out. There's, yeah, there's, there's no there's no there's no exit. Right. Uh, you, you just have to. I mean, once you start this bet, you have to win. Okay, so, power. so so he has you. So he has just hypothetically, obviously, it doesn't appear this way, but he takes Ukraine. All he takes it. Right. Is there a net? Is there a net? Is Asian? Is Europe next? Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, yes. He wants it Back all. Right? In, just in like Hitler wanted all of all of Europe as well. In approximately November, Vladimir Putin started all of this by saying, "I'm going to announce my red lines." In other words, if you cross me on these things, you will have war. And he mapped out retaking basically all of the Eastern European lands that the Soviet Union had held. He wanted no NATO troops in those territories, no NATO anything in those territories. It would all be the Russian sphere of influence, which means Russia would control them the way it used to control them in the days of the USSR. What he was mapping out was approximately 40% of Europe that he wanted, period. And he was giving an ultimatum. You give me these lands or you will have trouble. And the trouble started in the Ukraine. Why? Because Eurasian politics, remember, Eurasian politics, meaning the politics that goes all the way from the Atlantic Ocean um, to the right. Pacific Ocean. Right. Um, that the, a politics that spans 8,400 miles. Um, from east to west. That would be is, the largest landmass, I would assume, correct? Uh, yeah, of, it's of the times, continents. It is three times the size or the width of the United States. Okay. Just and, and um, probably even North America. It's probably three, yeah. three I mean, and something you have to remember. Here's um Vladimir Putin basically repeating the German argument of Lebensraum, having an up we need more room to live in, is what Hitler was saying. Basically repeating this, ignoring the fact that Russia is the biggest nation geographically on planet Earth. Right. Currently, yes. Yes, yeah. that it crosses 11 time zones. That's almost a half the planet. In <laughs> right. Width. Yeah, and technically 12, is, need, 12 would be half. So. Yeah, and why does it need more territory? The argument for the last 500 years has been we are vulnerable on our borders, so we need to take more territory to protect ourselves. Of course, what does that do? It gives you new borders where you're vulnerable. So you just have to take, keep, keep taking territory. Right. So there's no borders taking, left. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and I, I really am interested in knowing what Xi Jinping thinks about all of this. I mean, if I, you were him, he, you just said it, you would regard as Russia as much too small to ever achieve its ends with China. As ever being able to conquer China, because you have five to ten men for every one man that right. the Russians and, have, and the and technology you, it's already yes. so far ahead in both in both uh, alternative energies in te in you know homing technology in the hypersonic era, all of it is so advanced. Right, exactly, and 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 in fact, China is at this point is way ahead of us and so is russia and right hypersonics. right with hypersonics for sure and now we've launched that hypersonic initiative or whatever but 
Right. right. Well, we've had thing, it for I mean, a many, long time, but it keeps we need stalling what? How, many, how many nuclear weapons really? Need? We're not even talking small tactical. How many of the big ones do we need? One in for the globe to be pretty in trouble? I mean, maybe two. Right. Well, uh, yeah, what, we, but there's something else you have to know about yes. this Ukrainian war. Yes. Um, back in 2000, from 1998 to 2000, um, Vladimir Putin was watching carefully our war in the Balkans. And he watched as we immobilized entire cities by taking out their energy supply. And we made the, the Slavs in that territory of the Balkans absolutely helpless. We just paralyzed them. And he tried to think of a way in which he could make sure that never would happen to Russia. So he supervised a total rewrite of Russian military doctrine. And in that new rewrite, which was finished in 2000, there were tactical nuclear weapons, battlefield nuclear weapons, and they were called de-escalation. If you use them, it was called de-escalation. Why? Well, aside from the fact that George Orwell was right and that some dictators can tell you day is night and night is day and eventually you'll believe them. Um, aside from that, it meant because the enemy might be winning. And if you used a tactical nuclear weapon, the enemy would withdraw in fear right. because you don't fear using right. a nuclear weapon. They right. do. That's to your advantage. Yeah. And even so, in the even in the written doctrine that they talked about, any threat to Putin's regime is a is a threat against the existent was an existential threat. Correct. For yes, nuclear usage. Russia. Right. Yes. So. So right there alone, just his removal or even trying to try him for any war crime after this could result in some very dangerous play for we'll we'll have to see i mean right. i would i think this man should die immediately right because I, every I, minute he lives people I, are dying because i can't disagree i can't disagree with that and, so, I, uh, and I, nobody I, else and i don't think anybody else in russia is guilty of anything because because they've been directed from the top and they've had no choice i saw that young woman holding that sign in that news behind the news right, anchor right what absolute bravery balls absolute yes. you want to talk about your truth to the to the till death there's your truth right there right and she knew what she, she knew was what risking she, she knew it she knew it so sure. at any rate so we we do have a case in point of where we have to be able to walk in the shoes of vladimir putin in order to anticipate his next moves and it means that we look i'm a democrat i'm a liberal um i support joe biden in most things but I think if, if you see a mass murder and you don't move to stop it, you are an accomplice to it. And that makes Joe Biden an accomplice to these mass murders. Why? Because Zelensky said, look, I will fight your war for you. you Vladimir Putin has announced he wants 40% of Europe. I will stop him here in Ukraine with my people. You will not have to sacrifice a single American. Just give me fighter planes. Give me a thousand rockets a day, 500 anti-tank rockets and 500 anti-aircraft rockets and give me fighter jets so we can control the sky. So they cannot continue to raise our cities to the ground. That was a reasonable request. We should have done it a month ago. And every day when people die, as, as they did at the train station this morning, Joe Biden is an accomplice in that death. And because Joe Biden is our president, we are accomplices in those deaths. He has to stop pissing around. 
This is not a time for a coward in the White House. So no matter how much that cowardice is disguised as good sense. Right. I'm I'm tr- I'm you and I will ha- align in many ways and probably disagree in something. So I I'm totally good with that because that's what this is about, right? So my my let me ask you from your perspective as a very large proponent of Joe Biden. Do you think that Putin chose the timing from other actions that Biden has made showing weakness, for example, like Afghanistan. I'm not trying to make this all that. Afghanistan, Afghanistan helped, but it was two presidents who brought this about. Okay. It was Donald Trump who became Putin's puppy. Yeah. Donald Trump is a okay. bully. Um, and But among bullies. Well, Crimea was given under, was taken under Obama. Yes. And that was a huge mistake too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I remember that one very clearly. But it's so it's three presidents in a row. So as long as Trump was in power, Putin controlled the United States. Yeah. And the thing because 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 um, Donald Trump would do anything that Putin wanted him to do. Again, it's back to the bullies. There's a hierarchy even among bullies. Right. Because there's that that they slap each other on the back. Right. Because piranhas don't eat each other. Right. Sharks don't eat each other. They they eat the uh, they eat the prey. And from roughly, well, 1978 was the first time that Russia gave Donald Trump and his model Serbian wife or whatever she was, she was some sort of Slav, um, he gave them a free all expense paid trip to Moscow. And apparently Donald Trump has slavishly adhered. I mean, look at the wives he's chosen. One American and two right. Slavic women. Yep. Um, he has a serious infatuation with the Slavic empire. And when uh, Vladimir Putin came into power, um, he wanted, Donald Trump wanted more than anything else in the world to meet Vladimir Putin. And he put his Miss Universe pageant or whatever it was in Moscow, I believe in 2013, and said, maybe Putin will become my best friend. Um, and it didn't happen. So for years and years and years, he was begging for just the tiniest bit of attention of attention from the bully among all bullies, the king of the bullies, Vladimir Putin. And because he sees himself as subservient in the pecking order of bullies to Vladimir Putin, he's willing to crawl at Vladimir Putin's feet. And we saw that in Helsinki. We saw his body language. He was crawling and kissing this man's knees. Yeah. Yeah. So, so so what did Yeltsin see in Putin? I mean, that's a good Putin is a little guy. This is, you know, little guys sometimes make a big difference. Sneak in. Well, he he did not think that Putin would threaten him in any way. I mean, Yeltsin, I admired, I admired Yeltsin. I admired Gorbachev. I was, I would, that was my youth. I remember. Right. You know, and I hated Yeltsin because he, I mean, I hated Yeltsin because he drank. Yeah, I have East German family. So I, I was very, ah. very close to all of them. Like I said, my mom and my grandfather, grandmother and aunt escaped from East Germany in 1953 before the wall went up. I mean, wow. the stories that I, I did a podcast on it's on my website. But regardless, um, it's just amazing. These stories of of strife and and just overcoming and the just the humanity of it. It's right. It's, but 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 how did Yeltsin got duped or just did not find him a threat? 
is really Dalton I mean, probably did not find him a threat. He was but he little. handed him the keys, right? I mean, he yes, of, because he I'm sure he trusted that he could remain dominant over Vladimir Putin forever. Okay. Um, and it didn't work out that way. I mean, yeah. to him, Vladimir Putin looked like a blank slate. I mean, he had this Mickey Mouse little position in East Germany um, on the furthest boundaries uh, right. of, yeah, the KGB, of the KGB. Right. right. Um, he never had amounted to very much. He had a mediocre career. He was a little guy. How could this guy ever threaten him? Yeah. It's hard to see people's potential sometimes. Um, or, or their mind inside. Right. Their, their desires. You never know what what makes that person tick until you probably do one of your interviews. <laughs> right. And, and, and Freud put it very well because he went through this with Jung. He picked Jung uh, to be his successor. Um, Freud did because Freud felt, first of all, that the influence of his theories was limited because he was Jewish. So he needed to reach a non-Jewish audience. And Jung was the perfect blonde, blue-eyed, non-Jew um Aryan. Um, and at first, for the first 10 years or something like that, Jung was subservient and Jung was the vessel of Freud's ideas, but then he rebelled. Then Jung came into his own. Yeah. 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 And he and and as Freud put it in one of his books, the gods always eat their fathers. Um, and so uh, Jung pitted himself against Freud, basically, and created an alternative philosophy. Well, that's what you see happening with Yeltsin and Putin. Yeah. Huh. I mean, it's an excellent, that's an excellent viewpoint on it. I, I had not thought of it like that. I thought that he had handed him the keys and then, th- and then Yeltsin literally just rode off into the sunset. I didn't think he cared at that point. But. Well, uh, what turns out to be the case to my astonishment is that the role model is there's something I call the grandfather effect. You reject what your parents have given you, mm-hmm. but you find what your grandparents have uh, to be exotic and appealing. And that would be the motherland of CC of Soviet Union. Oh, no, the grandfather guess. in this case is Stalin. Okay. So yeah. um, Vladimir Putin is going back to the pureness of the Stalinist model, the purity of the Stalinist model. And guess who else is going back to the purity of the Stalinist model? Xi Jinping. Yeah, yeah. I the atrocities going on in China. I the Uyghur situation. I the right. Yemen situation. I mean, we sit here and we're talking Ukraine, and there's just things. I mean, are we? Well, look, there, there's something. <laughs> uh, you know, I go on uh, radio on 545 radio stations every Wednesday night doing a news commentary. And for years, I've been trying to explain to my audience that there is this thing called the axis of evil. And the axis of evil is an, a, a, a sort of hidden military alliance, hidden in clear sight. And it's Russia, China, North Korea, yeah. Iran, yeah. Syria, Venezuela, and Cuba. And they function together as an alliance. And every time we try to fool ourselves into thinking that China's not part of this alliance, we're fooling ourselves. The the Iran nuclear thing is right. also a head scratch. We're sitting, we're sitting here wanting to allow Russia to buy back the extra enriched uranium from the plants that they build and that they negotiated in a separate room from the United States. 
Right. So I, help me understand just the logic of that. I, I understand wanting to do things well, but that does not seem very thought out. No, I think it's a horrible. <laughs> the whole thing is monstrous. It's a it's a it, giant charade. Will Israel creating block this it because of is, the IRGC piece? Or well, that's it. The question is: Is Israel going to have to go to war with Iran in order to stop this, or is Israel going to have to tolerate it when when on uh, their missiles the Iranians put slogans saying this is to annihilate Israel? Right. Right. And oh, when I, they have. And and why do we ally ourselves with people who want to annihilate Jews just the way that their grandparents ally Adolf Hitler wanted to annihilate Jews? The Arab countries allied with with Adolf Hitler for a simple reason. They agreed on a fundamental premise. The Jewish people must be exterminated. And we are coddling these mass murderers why this is insane it's a plus we made a mistake one of the things that donald trump did right was what he called the abraham accords yes yeah with israel um saudi arabia Mm -hmm. the united arab emirates qatar and this was positive because these countries were giving up on the idea of exterminating the Jews and instead allying themselves with the Jews. And why were they doing that? Because Iran wants to wipe them out. Right. Because part of the basic founding philosophy of Iran is the idea that the revolution in Iran is just the first of many revolutions. And the next people on the shopping list, the next people to be toppled were, first of all, Iraq, which now Iran, for all practical purposes, owns, thanks to us. Right. Um, and it wants to topple the regimes in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and in Egypt. So they all have revolutions basically conceived and controlled. So is um, that is that Iran. would that be combining old Persia again then? When you really think about that uh, in a weird way, say, because what they're doing is something relatively new. They're operating through proxy armies. And so they have between five and 10 proxy armies at work. Okay. Hamas is a proxy army. Right. Hezbollah right. is a proxy Hezbollah, army. Yeah. If you go back to the Hezbollah founding document, it's all about Ayatollah Khomeini yeah. um, and his philosophy. My um, mother's hairdresser was Lebanese. Ah. And we used to go over there when she got her hair done when I was a child. Right. And he had a radio put up in Lebanon, Beirut, when the shootings were out in the 80s. And right. all you heard was gunfire. Duh, 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 duh. And then the radio was actually shot. And you heard it like literally go out. Amazing. Amazing. It's just, this, this was a Tuesday. You know what I mean? Right. Like, and you're sitting, we're sitting here. I'm sitting here in this beautiful, comfortable, air-conditioned ha- house in Arizona. Right. And I, and I sit here and I hear about that. And I, I... I'm overwhelmed with how I can help, you know, how, what I right. can do. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hezbollah is taking over um, Lebanon. Um, and uh, so, so far, Iran's proxy armies have taken Iraq. Um, they are taking Lebanon a little bit every day. Um, they're at work in Afghanistan. Um, they, one of their proxy armies is the Houthis in Yemen. So this Yemen war is a proxy war between the Shiite powers, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, et cetera, versus Iran. 
And the biggest thing going on in the Middle East is the war right now between the Shiite powers and the Sunni powers. The Sunni powers are uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and the rest of them. And the Shiite power is Iran and all of its little proxy armies that allow it to give the impression that these are just local groups. No, the Houthis are not local groups. They carry banners. They're mercenaries, call, basically, or, yeah, or they're, well, they part, call they're part the, of, right. They, they call for the extermination of the United States, the extermination of Israel, and the extermination of Jews. Those banners that you see all the time, you just don't know what they're saying because it's in the Arabic alphabet. Um, and the slogans were put together in Iran. So we are encouraging through the JPOA, the, the Iran nuclear deal, we are encouraging Iran and we are offering to give them lots and lots of extra money with which to fund their proxy armies. And the right understands that the right with whom I disagree about everything. Right. Understands that Um, the left does not. And Donald Trump allied us with the Sunni powers. And it was the wisest thing he could have done because when, uh, when Joe Biden broke that alliance, um, he was breaking, he was offending the guy who runs Saudi Arabia. Right, which that's is, correct, which is why we're paying X amount for fuel. They, hang, right. they don't even take his phone call, for God's that's sake. That's right, exactly. I, there, I've, yeah, we could, I mean, there's so many directions we could go with this. There's one specific thing you talk about, it, and, and, it's, and it's the last three presidents we mentioned. Right. The last three presidents have launched missiles into syria if i if i recall correctly right i'm a constitutionalist above all i feel like the congress still should evoke those rights that they should be the ones who declare that the difficulty is that a guy i have worked with and still in a loose alliance do work with named newt gingrich broke broke the american political system back in the 1990s i know and congress can't do anything well, how, how oh, so, so let's do that. Well, how did he break that? And in what way was did, he, he? He put now I I was sick in bed at that point and I had to be kept away from stress. So I didn't get to follow the news back in those days. But he put together his uh, um, contract with America. Yes. And he mobilized his troops to destroy anything Democratic. To destroy, uh, and I'm talking about democratic in the sense of the Democratic Party. Yeah. To destroy anything that had to do with the Democratic Party. See, that's so, that's so wrong because there's such value to both to the the job of dem, of the Democratic Progressive Party is to move things forward, and the job of the Conservative Republican Party is to keep you from moving forward. And that constant pressure against the progress allows us to move forward in a steady. It's called a dynamic way. balance. Yes. When you when you and yes. and. and at the heart of bloomism, you know, I have this grand unified theory of everything in the universe, including sex violence and the human soul. And at the heart of it is you're going to make me broke, by the way, because I am actually I have to buy all your audiobooks now. Because uh, Well, so basically um, it says in bloomism opposites are joined at the hip. And there is a, a, there was a guy who used to run ads in comic books when I was a kid in which a skinny little 99-pound weakling is always beaten by a great big athletic guy who gets the girls. Um, And what Charles Atlas was selling was a technique of doing exercise by, you know what you do when you try to show how big your bicep is? 
you curl up your hand into a ball, you put your elbow at right angles. Yeah, it was a black um, and white pictures in the back of magazines, right? Where Tony Atlas would be like, build build muscle weight like me. What he was preaching was isometrics. In other words, do what you do when you try to show your bicep to all your muscles. Um, Balance the extenders or lock the extenders in furious battle against the extensors. Or, or the whatever they are yeah, resistance training right basically yeah in, exactly. in, in its own way and and government works through a balance of opposites of that kind a dynamic balance and one side gets the edge over the other side and that determines how the whole thing moves but because um newt gingrich turned the uh the congress into a battleground a perpetual battleground where it wasn't two sides contending against each other in debate and then coming to a conclusion, it was one side trying to exterminate the power of the other side utterly and not caring about conclusions. Why? Because when a person from the government knocks on your door and says, I am here to help, that's the beginning of your troubles, said Ronald Reagan. In other words, government is bad, so why not make, why not totally paralyze Congress and the Senate? Why not? Government yeah. is bad. Who 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 can make the argument that a good idea is political? A good idea is just a good idea, right? I, and that's it, true. So would the Abraham Accords sit on his merit, is a right? good idea. The yeah. the death of one person, Khashoggi. Right. Well, the ass kissing of Putin is a bad idea. I mean, you know. yeah. Well, like, because <laughs> we he are, happened right? he happened to work for the Washington Post, but he was a genocidal person too. Because he believed in the extermination of the Jews. So fuck his ass. Um, not that I don't care. I, I, you know, I live for free speech. It's one of the most important values I have. So I'm psychic and I just was going to say free speech. I was going right. to ask you about Twitter because of, I mean, regardless of how Donald Trump is or perceived or whatever, I believe the Ayatollah has an account open. Right. Still, that speaks to the death of Zion. Right. Openly. Right. That is an open account. Well, the problem How, what's was the logic that, there. <laughs> the, 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 there's a simple practical problem that doesn't fit with my theories at all, because okay. I have a project. There's a thing called the Howard Bloom Institute, which yes. has been up and running for on howardbloom.net speaks about it. Yeah, this this is no, this is Howard Bloom, all one word dot institute. That is, OK, let me see if I've, I've got that up here. OK. And cool. one of our projects is why save Western civilization? And one of the primary values, the primary values of Western civilization are democracy, freedom of speech, pluralism, and tolerance. So how do I justify removing Donald Trump from Twitter? Because Donald Trump was using Twitter as a weapon against America. Yes, and if he incited violence, dox people, there's, you know, obviously we have those limits, right? There are those certain guidelines that we just cannot cross well one of the things those are crossed i definitely am again that cannot be remember he's a little he's a little mini vladimir putin and what he's a little bully for sure you know what vladimir putin is demonstrating right now is that if you wipe out all contending opinions and you repeat a falsehood day after day after day that falsehood becomes people's reality so People you've seen people in the Ukraine who are complaining because they have parents in Russia and they can't talk to their parents anymore. 
because when they tell them, look, 50 people died this morning at a train station because of a Russian attack, their parents say, that's not a Russian attack. How dare you say that? Right. That's the Ukrainians, Ukrainians attacking right. Ukrainians yep. in order to make Russia look bad. Right. Or Ukraine it's the Nazis still... inside Ukraine or right. inside Ukraine doing it, right? Right. So they can't talk to their parents anymore oh. because they live in such different realities. And yet, and, yet the home, I mean, yet the similarities and the culture are so intertwined. I mean, but the deal what's is the percentage that Donald, of Ukrainians Trump, speak Russian, right? Donald Trump was trying to impose that kind of alternative reality on the United States. He said, every piece of true news is fake news. And only news that comes from me, which I make up and has nothing to do with reality, right. is real. Well, what's funny to me is like both things to be true. Like there is fake news and he speaks fake news. Well, back in the 1970s, <laughs> yeah. I was on a crusade against the people in the media. Why? Because journalism was important to me, very important, not just as a reader, but as a person who was beginning to write journalistically. Um, and I felt that the same two rules that applied in science were basically the first two rules of journalism, a truth at any price, including the price of your life, and look at things from under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. And I saw instances where the press was lying to me. For example, there was this thing called that Howard Hughes was building called the Glomar Explorer. And there were these glowing stories about how it was going to dredge minerals uh, and metals from the sea bottom and turn them into the new resource base for the, the globe's industries. Well, it turned out that's one, that wasn't what the Glomar Explorer was at all. This was a cover story. And that basically the CIA in those days had called in the heads of what you just called the corporate press a few minutes ago yeah. and said, look, we need your cooperation with this. And what they were apparently trying to do was dredge up the wreck of a submarine. I don't remember whether it was a Russian submarine or an American submarine. I think I remember that because one got lost or got misplaced and they had to. Yeah. And they it. wanted to they wanted yeah. to piece together its secrets. So we we're spending this vast amount of money with Howard Hughes, who had a traditional relationship with the CIA and the details, military. Yeah. For sure. details I, mean, he, I would later. World War I would one, later trip a lot across the military. I mean, What's that? Howard Hughes had a lot of military aircraft. Well, in World he, he War was I, in correct? the aircraft industry. Right, right, right. So, yes, the military had a lot to do with that. Especially the birth of aviation. Jeez, but, they were but so But apparently, when this is all very complicated and has to do with the, the, the speculation about conspiracies and the JFK assassination. But I, um, I am I go down every rabbit hole, Howard. So please. Well, in 1959, um, Fidel Castro. Um, managed to pull off a revolution in Cuba and drive out the dictator, Batista. Now, Havana was a gambling town. I, my father used to talk about it with fascination. Um, and the mafia was using it to launder its money. Um, and the CIA, seeing that the mafia was using it to launder money, used Havana to launder money too. So when Havana was shut down as a casino town, a gambling town by Fidel Castro, um, the, the CIA had no place to launder its money. And they went to Howard Hughes and they said, look, there's this little place in the desert. Um, can you help us develop it as the new Havana? And Howard Hughes helped them develop a city called Las Vegas. 
So was Harry, New Havana thought of as a name? Because that would have been pretty cool. Uh, no, I don't think it was. Because that would be neat. And you've read how I accidentally no, you've read. I did not. Uh, I've read. Michael, I read Einstein. Read Einstein, Michael, Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson, me. Jackson me. So you saw how I accidentally tripped across the traces of Howard Hughes. Yes. In my various adventures in the music yeah, industry. Absolutely. Yeah. So at any rate, I was furious in the 1970s for this and a series of other stories in which the press wasn't telling the truth. And then I ran into an instance of it. My, I, I went to NYU and um, I found a woman who was willing to sleep with me, which was an utter astonishment. And uh, so I moved in with her. And then at one point she came to me and she said, look, we have to get married. I'm embarrassed all the time because we live in a building with Catholic Puerto Ricans and they look down on me because you and I aren't married and you're sleeping here. <laughs> um, and so if you don't marry me by May 11th, you're out, gone, period. Um, so I went and found myself another apartment in the neighborhood. And when I was <laughs> shopping for other apartments, one of the buildings I looked at was really fairly astonishing. The Lower East Side at that point, which is where we were, her apartment was on 7th Street between Avenue B and Avenue C, was the most dangerous neighborhood, the deepest slum in New York City. And there were people on her block who were being shot every week. There was a drug dealer on her first floor who had a door that looked like it was the door to a fortress. And nonetheless, somebody plowed straight through that door one day and stole all of the goods and money inside. Um, it was a dangerous place to live. And one of the buildings I visited because I was looking for an apartment was un astonishing. Every apartment had been remodeled. Now, why you remodel apartments in a neighborhood where the rents are $40 a month is I don't understand how the landlord could afford to do this. But the, the super was who was part of this renovation process was extremely proud of the renovation. But he said, there's one family living in this building. We can't get rid of them. And their place is a fire hazard. Instead of getting their electricity from Con Edison, they wired the line uh, to the meter and are bringing in electricity with, with naked uh, copper wires that could go off at any time. The place, yeah. there are seven people living there. And uh, the place is just littered with newspapers and all kinds of flammable things. And there's nothing we can do about it. Well, a few days later, there was a story in the Village Voice. And it was about this appalling slumlord and how because of the slum conditions he maintained, there had been a fire in one of his apartments and a baby had been killed. When I looked at the address, it was the address of the building I had been to. What they were saying about the landlord was a lie. It had nothing to do with reality. It was simply a projection of their knee-jerk, who knows, Marxist or something, right. point of view. Some anti-capitalist point of view. Right. Um, so and I was furious <laughs> because I depend on journalists for my news. And I want the truth. And I believe their obligation is to the truth. So I went on a crusade against... Fake me, fake news. But fake news, these mistaken stories, were one one hundredth of the news that was coming out. The fake news on Fox News is 99% of the material. Maybe, okay, 90%. <laughs>
of the material that's coming out. It truly is a fake news channel. And compared to that fake news, what I was complaining about is nothing. Yes, it has to be rectified. No right. question about that. Everything should be accurate. I quintuple check my facts for my books. Yeah. So, so on that fact of journalism and truth, uh, may I share the Michael Jackson, one of my Michael Jackson conversations? Oh, yes, absolutely. So I spoke with a gentleman named Charles Thompson. Yeah, who was in uh, he was part of the the documentary that Danny Wu did. Uh, gosh, darn it. Uh, Which one? Square is one. The square one. Square one documentary. Oh, I, I'm on not Amazon. familiar with the documentaries. That's the one he did. Taj Jackson was big on that. Uh, oh, like Michael's Taj is working on his own film. Now. And he's working on his own. He's doing a series as well. So he's working right. on a few things. So I spoke. I was I had the the luxury of speaking with Taj. And then I spoke with Danny, who's the director. And then I spoke with Charles, who is a journalist who was also in it. Right. He, he spoke of a story where he went to a concert or some benefit or some award program in Britain. Cause he's right. a British journalist and something about, I believe it was the son at the time. Is that uh, what's his name? Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch. Right. I think. Uh, Lachlan Murdoch. Yeah. Get, get anything against michael jackson at all costs if it's bad it's better if you can't right. find something make it up so he goes to this concert thing or this award ceremony michael jackson goes up place is going bananas so right. they ask him to sing at the end of the night he can't hear they're handing him a microphone it's just crazy it's a bedlam he ends right. up walking off the stage but not not in a huff just confused or whatever right guy comes back in the next morning and as he's walking towards the break room, everybody's apologizing. Sorry, man. Sorry. Sorry. And he's like, what are you guys talking about? He had no idea. He goes and he sees all the different newspapers laying out on the table. And here it was at the top. Michael Jackson booed off stage. And OK, there, let me tell you, let me tell you a story <laughs> that will help explain this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I end up as the top music publicist in the business. And with the biggest PR firm, music PR firm in the business, which is a whole other story about how I got from Rachmaninoff to Michael Jackson. And I end up working with the Jacksons. And um, we're out on the road. Um, there are 120 journalists traveling with us. We're doing stadiums and stadiums have press boxes that'll easily fit 150 journalists. Um, and every night I do a press conference after the show. So I, because I've been wandering around during the show, taking notes on everything that's going on. So I can tell all the backstage things um, to the press. And one of the press people traveling with us tells me a story. And he, he says uh, he works for the Boston Herald American. In Boston in those days, there were two major newspapers, the Boston Globe and the Boston Herald American. The Boston Globe so outsold the Boston Herald American by 10,000 copies every single day. The Boston Herald American had nine Pulitzers. The Boston Globe had 39 Pulitzers. Um, and one day, the publisher of the Boston Herald American, the second newspaper in Boston, walked into the press room where all the journalists are busy typing away. And he pointed at the guy who did the rock coverage and said, you, um, I, I want a cover story on Michael Jackson. And the room went bananas. They said, look, we are not a shopping market tabloid. We are, don't do celebrity journalism. That's not news. 
Um, he listened to all of these complaints and the publisher said, I'm sorry, tomorrow we're doing a cover on Michael Jackson and walked out. So the next day, the Boston Herald American had a cover story on Michael Jackson. Now remember, they undersold the Boston Globe by 10,000 copies every single day. The day they had Michael Jackson on the cover, they outsold the Boston Globe by 10,000 copies. Their <laughs> circulation went up by 20,000 20, copies. That's a 20,000 delta right there. Right. The next day, the publisher walked into the newsroom again, pointed at the guy who did the rock journalism and said, you, I'm giving you your own private office. I'm giving you a personal secretary. From now on, I want a Michael Jackson story every day. And the publisher at the Boston Globe, seeing that he'd been outsold by 10,000 copies, walked into his newsroom and looked at his music journalist and said, you, I'm giving you your own private office with your own private secretary. I want a Michael Jackson story every day. Now, which do you think sold more, positive stories on Michael Jackson or negative stories? And I'll give you a hint. If it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> it's always the negative. It's, it, yeah, right. I mean, so <laughs> so my negative Michael Jackson stories meant huge amounts of money to publishers. But, but that's why artists are so special, right? Because making what they make out of a crowd, how they mold a crowd is a positive in oh. every way. Well, unless you use it for diabolical reasons like Hitler. But, right. But yeah. it's a basically a positive, right? In the general sense that we're all well, together in something. Remember that experience? Together. Remember yeah. that experience that I was seeking because the yeah. synagogue didn't have it of transcendence and yeah. the ecstatic? That happens at a concert. We call used to call it getting off. Yeah. Um, the crowd would get off. What did that mean? It went into an ecstatic and a transcendent state. And so did the artist on stage. And that um, speaks that, to the special, though, because, right, how, how hard is it to create good? It's so easy to create negative, right? The creating of the positive is, is such a challenge. The energy and it's, needed. It's not just a challenge. I'm going to use a very strange word. You're chosen. Yeah. You can't achieve that through will. Yeah. That is something, I mean, will is profoundly important. Well, like your work ethic, but, your work ethic is not, is not a, I would not think it's a choice. I think it's you're driven, you're wired that way. You're wired right. to work. Right. And, and, and some people are chosen so that if they work hard enough at their craft, they reach a point where in front of an audience, they can have a transcendent experience because the audience is having a transcendent experience. It's it's a crowd phenomenon. It oh, somebody is calling. <laughs> no worries. Oh, that's my girlfriend trying to remind me that we have yeah, a date. Go ahead, mute so, me. Mute me for a second. Um, well, yeah, just go ahead and mute. Uh, no, 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 no. I, 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 well, I'll, I'll tell her. Um, let me go over to Facebook. So she wants. To, oh, what a amazing picture she sent. All right. Okay. Let me just tell her. Absolutely. Hi, Carrie. I know we, I know we have a date, but I'm on an interview right now. Okay. So I'll be there on time. Okay. And I love your picture with a fan. Okay. I love you too. Bye. Okay. So what, shall I let you go or? Well, that's the only thing I do in life aside from, Oh my God, I'm late for the date. Oh my gosh, you're late. I'm eight, well, I'm eight minutes late. I oh. no wonder she's calling me. Well, all right. I, I better was, get off. 
we we shall talk another time. Howard, thank you so much. I hope we get to talk again soon. Me too. Thanks. Take Thanks, care. Mark. Thanks. Have a great night. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye. Once again, that was Howard Bloom. Uh, you can find him just uh, doing any kind of search for Howard Bloom. He's a world famous famous publicist, uh, scientist, mathematician. Uh, philosopher, you name it, like I said. Uh, Thank you again for listening to Not Conscious, and I hope you guys have a great time. Uh, Like I said, I have another episode scheduled with him or another conversation scheduled with him in a few weeks. As soon as I get that uh, put together, cobbled together, I will post it, and I'll let you all know. Thanks again, everybody. Take care.